Hello, I'm Pete Raby, CEO of the X4 Group, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm a big believer, like many of you, that good leadership takes a hunger to learn and reflect. And when we open up about our own experiences, we give others permission to do the same. The Leadership Learns podcast brings you inspiring stories from diverse global leaders from a range of different organizations and industries on how they innovate and improve to become the best possible leader. Our guest today is Daniel Kuto, Chief Operating Officer of Adanta Biosciences, a leading microbiome company. Dan has nearly 30 years experience starting and advancing biopharmaceutical development and manufacturing within organizations. He's worked for several biotech startups and businesses where scaling was a key aim, as well as having worked for some of the world's largest pharmaceutical and life science businesses. Dan, welcome. Thanks for being with me. How are you and how on earth have the last 18 months been for you? Right, Pete. Thanks for having me. Um, this is a joy. Uh, the last 18 months, wow. Um, I think for everybody, it's been quite a roller coaster. We at the company have tried to pivot uh, when we've been faced with things that were unexpected and um, tried to control things within our control. And the market sector uh, has given us uh, some surprises along with the pandemic itself and the intertwining of the two of them. Uh, but yeah, it's been, it's been quite a ride. I think you're in a pretty unique position, Dan, where not only have you had global event to deal with, but as you've just kind of touched upon very gently there, you're part of uh, an area of the market <laughs> where there's not too much footprint. You guys are making new footprints in the snow. You're in areas which are incredibly exciting, which we'll move on to a little bit of time because I think it, it'll be really nice to almost start um, uh, as we build up to that just to give the the listeners a bit of an intro of how you got to where you have done today because I think one of the great things that most leaders do is before they rush into conversations and get into the nitty-gritty is really understand about where things have come from and the context of that. And actually, if you wouldn't mind taking us back to school and education and what was in your head and why you got into the degree you did, why you have taken the career choices you have, that would be a great uh, initial background. You know, it's funny uh, you say those words, Peter, um, school and education and what was in my head. Uh, one thing that not too, too many people know about what was in my head was um, I'm fairly severely touched with dyslexia. And um, that is something that's been in my head uh, my whole entire life, which has shaped me just like any other experience. So um, I believe that people uh, as adults and as professionals, you can tell where they've come from, what their backgrounds were, things like that, from how they operate. And uh, mine is no different. I'm the youngest of six in my family. And I had the uh, privilege of having older siblings uh, that helped make me who I was. Um, you could imagine growing up in a family of six, you have to really have a voice or you wouldn't be heard. And so um, I learned very readily to be able to be an advocate and assertive uh, just out of necessity of survival, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Yeah. I touch upon the dyslexia bit because uh, for me, it caused me to have to figure out different strategies to do the same thing everybody else was doing. And from that point of view, um, I think that that then influenced my outlook on uh, being able to problem solve and probably pushed me towards the educational route that I was in around chemical engineering, because uh, if nothing else, chemical engineering teaches you how to solve problems and, and systematically break down problems. I, um, I also was uh, had the advanced experience with having an older brother of 10 years that was a chemical engineer. 
And I, I got to be able to go and see what he did in biotech because it was in the Massachusetts area and uh, see what kind of neat things he was able to do. So a lot of things kind of shaped me to go towards chemical engineering. I chose, however, the school that I went to. I went to RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and I chose that for reasons that people typically would not choose. Uh, I'm a lacrosse player. I played lacrosse through grade school, high school, and in, in college. And um, I was, you know, in an area where I could have gone and was was accepted to go to MIT, but that was too close to home and they didn't have a lacrosse team. And uh, and also in schools in California, but that was too far from my parents' point of view. So I chose RPI, which is in upstate New York, and it's about three hours away and had fantastic, um, good Division three lacrosse. But what I didn't realize at the time was how focused and advanced it was in bioseparations and biochemical engineering uh, with the faculty and the support that they had from the area. And that that was a huge influence. And you start to talk, and we'll probably talk throughout the, the time here, around mentors. Uh, one of my mentors that was in college was um, my professor, uh, Steve Kramer, who uh, is just a fantastic human being, let alone a brilliant teacher. Dan, I feel like we could probably spend the next hour talking through um, lacrosse competition, youngest of six and bits and pieces. But one of the points that I think is a brilliant one to touch on, actually, I was at the British Open Golf last week. And despite the fact that I'm just watching those guys with envy at how they managed to play this sport, which is so damn tough, make absolutely look uh, like a walk in the park. What came out in the previous days was John Rahm talking about the fact that he'd, he's been cri- criticised or like had the conversation posted to him for years. Why is your swing as it is? It's not very pretty. It's not very graceful. And he talked about how, well, I, I had a club foot now when I was born. So my ankle is pretty weak. So what I've done is I've adapted and he won a major. He's number one in the world. And of course, dyslexia and physical disability are different. Of course they are. But in the same ways, by you mentioning it, it's clearly something that you knew that this was something that, no, I need to make my choices carefully. And I'm going to make sure that that's not going to define who I am. I think there's a lot of people with anything which can be be perceived as something different from others. is like, oh, I'm going to wear that around me. It's going to be a, a big thing that burdens me for the rest of my life. Whereas like John Rahm becoming world number one and winning major, and like the choices that you made, I love that line that you gave there, Dan. I went into chemical engineering because chemical engineering requires problems to be solved. So that's why I went into that. And I think there's something great where, again, like John, you've kind of gone, right, what have I got? What do I want to be doing? And, and then actually making choices based upon that and actually making choices, therefore, to give you strengths as opposed to it being a weakness. And I, I, I don't know if that was a, one of those things that you've thought long and hard about, Dan, looking back. Was that one of those things that you look back and think, wow, I'm pretty glad of the choices I made now? Was it was it, was it that logical at the time? <laughs> at the time when you're a young person, um, you do things not based off of like logic, more based off of gut feeling instinct. Maybe if you're, if you listen, uh, guidance from others, right? But um, in retrospect, I think, and this touches upon leadership, really, in retrospect, you're recognizing what you're good at and what you're not good at. And that goes towards uh, focus. And you can really take a look at what you're not good at and spend a lot of time trying to develop the things you're not good at, or you can be world-class in what you are good at and then go look to supplement what you're not good at uh, with other people. And what I notice about a number of leaders is they choose to surround themselves with good people, not just because they want to be good, but because I think they are looking for uh, synergy between what they're good at and what uh, their, their people around them can do for them. You're damn right there. I've heard a lot of people in the last three months of doing this podcast 
and a lot of the reading that I do talk about the fact that you want people in the room that are much, much better at the things that they're good at than you ever could be. And I think that actually takes a few years of maturity. I think it, especially people that are naturally competitive. And you mentioned lacrosse there. We've got a lot of sports people in our business, Dan, but and sports people by their nature kind of like being good at stuff. And the reality is, therefore, things that you're not good at, you naturally want to run away from or pretend you're good at or whatever the case may be. Whereas I think that might take some real maturity and some time in industry and in working life to get to that point. And, and, and that was one of the things that I wanted to ask you, because looking through your background, coming from a heavily manufacturing background, with also commercial roles mixed in there as well, and now ending up in this kind of COO position, how have you navigated your career choices in terms of the jobs that you've been in so far, Dan? Because that's always a bit of an unspoken thing, isn't it? Yeah, no, that that's absolutely right. And I too was some of the young and ambitious that wanted to be CEO when I grew up. But, you know, you go through this journey and I think part of the journey is opportunities that pop up and whether you have the courage to, to take that opportunity or not at the time. But part of it is your control over your environment and the people you choose to interact with and listen and learn and a lot of different attributes like that, that help guide you on this path. So it's not totally, you know, kismet to get to where you are. You do have a little bit of control over your your choices and your, therefore, your opportunities you can and cannot take. Uh, for me, early on, I too wanted to be a CEO. But as I went through my journey, I knew two things. One, I knew to be a good CEO, I needed to really learn as much as I can about the, the people that I would hopefully one day lead. So I, I chose to kind of bring a, a div- more diverse functional understanding by working in different, different areas within companies to really get a better understanding so I could uh, communicate and I could um, give the people that would one day be under my command the, the support and the, the mentoring and the tools that they needed right, to be successful. But as I went through this, I also realized that a CEO isn't the only person in the, in the leadership team. There were others that played very specific and crucial roles. And for my personality and what I gravitate towards, I then realized I wanted to be a COO and not a CEO because the COO role is more inward-facing execution delivery on milestones building key competencies um, within the company, aligning people, getting them to work well together and deliver. And so all of those types of things were very attractive to me. And that's that's really the direction that I was, um, I think, born to be able to do. We've only been in our current roles of CEO and one of the other co-founders as COO for the last 10 odd months, Dan. And the one thing that I do know is that I regard the COO role as <laughs> a position that I think I'd be utterly unskilled to be able to do. It's extremely complex. It requires a real level head and a real desire to learn in all these different areas. But I guess also it requires the ability to have people within those functions that you trust, that you know are very good at their job, and and, and you also kind of back to make the right decisions. Before we go back and speak a little bit about the uniqueness of your market, Dan, because as many of the listeners all know, but some may not, the Boston and Massachusetts area is an absolute epicenter for life sciences, pharmaceutical, and everything you know, everything closely connected businesses in the US, and is a real global hub too. So we'll get talking about the kind of market and challenges. But you mentioned something there before that I've heard some really interesting things on in the last few episodes that we've, we've recorded. Mentoring 
I think can have an enormously beneficial impact. And I'd be really interested to hear what your take on mentoring is, how you go about it, and, and, and what do you think some of the um, you know the essentials are in relation to that. Mentoring is a is a very important thing uh, that you know choosing the right mentor is crucial, and having that mentor put the time and effort into it is crucial. So it's not an overnight type of thing. You really want to search out. It's no different than any other relationship that you want to maintain. And many of my mentors, if not all my mentors, I still maintain that relationship now, even though that might have been 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, But the mentoring part of it, that is, I think, a necessity for leaders. They have to be able to pass down and share the knowledge that they have acquired to their people and do it in a way that is current and effective. Um, Luckily, many of the things in leadership are, I would consider, fairly universal and um, truths, right? Uh, Virtues that are timeless. So mentoring, it's like anything else, like managing people or whatever, you have to put the time in to do it correctly. I just think that if you want your team, your company to be first in class, you have to realize that that bringing in good people and then nurturing them is probably one of the most important things that you can do. And as a skill, uh, to be able to do that and and hone it and and have it be thriving in your company will make the difference. When the chips are down, you can rely on people. When things are needing to be expanded and and life is good, and you're really you know, bursting at the seams to grow and create capabilities within the company, you need those people as well. So it, it, it's, it's crucial. How does a leader ensure that they've got the right balance of gut feeling, which is important sometimes, and taking a step back? Again, stepping back and thinking about things now, Dan, do you realize that you have a good system in place to make sure that on a semi-regular basis that you're stepping back and looking at things in a, in a different perspective from the humdrum of, of every day? I have certain parts of my day, like others, that I tend to do that in. I live outside of Boston in a suburb, but as people in Boston know, and some people outside of Boston may understand, the traffic here is horrible. <laughs> and so my commute, even though I'm driving 15 miles, is probably easily an hour and 15 minutes each way. So I I have the advantage of having a chunk of time going and coming from work uh, to be able to think and reflect. The other place that I weirdly do a lot of my brainstorming, if nothing else, is uh, in the shower in the morning. (laughs) I have these conversations with myself in the shower and I play out situations and I do all kinds of stuff and the acoustics is fantastic. But the... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but the time the time that I have to actually do it is um, is not a formal slot that I could put on my calendar because my calendar is chock-a-block. I don't have that kind of time. And if I do have time like that, I'm usually uh, spending it with people trying to you know talk to them and understand what's going on, whether it's a walk around at work or taking them to lunch or something along those lines, but to really interact with people. Things are complex and can be chaotic as a COO, um, a lot of moving parts. And when you're in a time of kind of chaos and confusion and whatever, I think leaders are expected to make it okay for their people. And the way that I've kind of fallen back on to doing that is to simplify things or to bring people back to the reason why we're doing it or to have them step away from the weeds and really try and take a look at the problem in a different way. You talked about um, 
you know, gut feeling and visceral kind of, you know, reaction and stuff. There, there's a place for where your gut feeling is. And for me, my gut feeling is kind of like a spidey sense. Um, it's something where it's telling me something's either not quite right or needs to be looked into more, right? And it's more of an alert for me that then I go and would systematically kind of try and investigate in an area or have my people look into because there may be some level of risk in what I'm hearing, build a lot of plan B, plan C scenarios so that if something doesn't pan out, we always have something to fall back on. So that's how that's how I use my, my gut feeling. There are some business books that I've read that I think, how on earth does anybody understand what they're talking Maybe you've got to have a PhD from Harvard or Cambridge. And to understand some of these philosophies and management parables and, 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 and tactics, I'm, I'm someone that absolutely needs things simplified. And I think actually every now and then, Dan, it, it is in the importance, as you say, sometimes it's shower time. I like getting on my bike to work, which is my thing that I've done since lockdown in London. Let, let's talk a little bit as well. Like the last 18 months has been unique and it's been unique for so many industries. You guys are in a, a unique market, a new market, and also unlike a technology business where you can get your you can get your hardware in and then go to work. You guys have got quite a lot of other factors that externally contribute to your business. So maybe just for listeners, Dan, like the pharmaceutical and life sciences space is such a big, fat, wide term that can mean so many things. Give us a little bit about where you guys sit within that spectrum, what you're doing, which is unique, and maybe some of those unique challenges that have uh, that have come up in the last 18 months you've had to adapt to. So the, I think the first thing to understand uh, around Vedanta is that we're a smaller biotech company. I was employee number 13 when I joined the company about five or six years ago, and it was a true blank canvas that we could create whatever we wanted to create, which was fantastic and refreshing to be able to take all of the good things from your past experiences and, and assemble those and trim away all the bad things that you didn't like and run it the way that you feel is best. But as a small biotech, we rely on a lot of different attributes uh, within our company to do the same things that larger pharmaceutical companies do, but with less resources, right? much less resources. So we do that because we need to bring the best people in-house that can react and problem solve and adjust to things that are happening within drug development. And that interaction best happens, in my opinion, when you're together. You can build a relationship more readily, more easily. You can bounce ideas off of one another. You can uh, alert people quickly of problems when you're co-located in the same office. The ability to do that had totally gone on its ear. We uh, we weren't able to be co-locating. We weren't able to stay connected and communicate. Our company grew over the last five years um, quite a bit. We're um, you know 115 people going towards 130 in this year, and the amount of programs that we're handling now and the number of moving parts we're handling now are exponential. And so in order to execute on that um, in a COVID environment really hampered us communication-wise, problem-solving-wise, all of it. And in order to kind of combat against that, uh, we had to do some things that were a little bit different than what we were used to. Uh, one example that I think about is um, I mentioned earlier a walk-around, right? In all of the companies that I've been at, 
I've taken the time first thing in the morning to walk around the entire company, walk all the all the different uh, laboratories or walk all the different manufacturing areas, um, walk the campus, wherever it was, and therefore get to interact and talk with people and, and see how things are going and that firsthand. Uh, that was actually something that I had learned from one of my mentors. And so from that point of view, I could not do that anymore. That's just not an option when you're in a virtual environment. And so I had had to adapt um, virtually by doing what I would call a virtual walk around. I have my one-on-ones with my people and I have my own staff meetings and all those like most people do. But um, I was having to go and really put the effort into what we'd call skip level meetings. So make the effort to be able to join meetings of my people's staff or my people's people's staff and really try to connect with not only interacting with them and understanding what's going on and how I might be able to help, you know, and and help for me is being able to give guidance on prioritization or be able to shift resources when someone's struggling so that they can give a hand or, or things like that. Right. So the skip level kind of meeting thing is something I tried to permeate through the organization and, and really try to push as a, a new way of doing business. We're, we're going back to work uh, over the last three months or so, right? Uh, we've kind of started to trickle back in and um, things are starting to get a little bit more normal, but I don't think we'll ever be exactly where we were. We've adapted what a lot of other companies are as a hybrid. So there will always be an element of virtualness to how we do business. And therefore, we'll have to practice this going forward. A virtual walk around. Absolutely love that phrase. And skip level meetings. That's a new phrase to me as well. So I, I think there'll be a lot that people will take away from that. We set up these uh, these meetings called X4 Improve Meetings, where once a month I grab eight, nine, ten employees from different areas of the business, different brands in the business, sit in different spots. And we go downstairs into our kind of entertainment area, have a glass of wine together. And I just say, I'd love to hear what you guys think. What's good? What was your first phone call like when you, when you, from our talent acquisition team? What was your first day like, first week? How's learning and development been so far? How's team mingling going and all that kind of stuff? And I can fire loads of random stuff. And then at the end of that, my assistant and I sit down and go, wow, there were some good learns there. What were the stuff that were clearly individual issues that people had? What was stuff where there were a lot of nodding heads around the table? And actually, I've enjoyed it so much because on that monthly basis, you get to hear from people you'd never normally have the time to interact with. I guess it's almost my version of your walk-arounds. I still do enjoy, as my staff will know, power walking around the office and seeing how people's days are going and feeding off that energy that, that people that want to make something of themselves give. But at the end of the day, that those power walk-arounds, I don't find I often get very much productive stuff done because I'm too interested in virtual high-fiving or just giving a bit of energy into the room, right? And those kind of extra, th- th- those monthly improved meetings I found to be a great addition. But virtual walk-arounds and skip-level meetings, Dan, I'm, I'm, without a doubt, I've uh, got an underline against that. I'm going to be making sure that that's in the, in the next quarterly plan because I think there's some great stuff there. Again, let's talk about, because the sector that you are in is new, And there are going to be many, many challenges with that. I know that when COVID and COVID-related businesses, organizations and supply chains are going to have been absolutely at the pinnacle of where government funding, of where all efforts and finances are going towards, that of course, there are many areas of all the industries from technologies to life sciences and pharmaceuticals and bioscience that actually have had some reverberated repercussions off the back of that. How how have you guys found, found it from that angle in the last 18 months? So. 
We are a company that is developing therapeutics, but we're not in the COVID vaccine sector, right? Or the support of COVID vaccine sector. Uh, we service all kinds of different indications outside of that that are unmet medical needs and so forth. So when you are trying to do that, obviously you need uh, raw materials consumables um, for manufacturing. You need the same for um, research and development. And in the United States, there is a mandate related to uh, Operation Warp Speed, which is basically giving a highest priority to COVID-related companies to be able to access a lot of these raw materials consumables, mostly thermoplastic products, right? Our manufacturing operations right now are very much 100% single-use disposable, which has, as you would imagine, a lot of thermoplastic-based disposable products. So to be able to place orders and get bags or pipette tips or any tubing or any other things along those lines, you place an order like normal, but then you would be notified that your order has been delayed and delayed and delayed way past what you would think and what you would need. This has impacted our timeline and delivery uh, dramatically. We had to pivot and try to find additional uh, second sourcing vendors, uh, get them qualified and get them into our supply chain in order to help to combat it. But a lot of these things are really on a global scale because not only are we doing that, other people are doing that as well to try and mitigate. So so that's been a major kind of an impact from, from that point of view. The other thing Absolutely. that has happened um, just to touch on is people. And I don't know if it's a regional thing in Massachusetts for, for life science or, or something larger, but there's been a lot of investment over the last um, 18 months, a year into the life sciences sector. And for that, you know, that stimulates then growth and expansion and building and so forth. So a lot of facilities are being constructed for manufacturing. A lot of increases in capacity have happened. And therefore, the demand for people to be able to not just build, but to validate, to uh, help develop, to manufacture, uh, quality assurance, regulatory, you name it. All of these types of things have been uh, highly in demand. We have open requisitions for all kinds of positions across the board. And some of them we can fill and other ones, it's just been very, very difficult. I know that you have a little bit of UK experience, which is which is great to see up That's in right. the uh, up in the part of England, which I'm extremely well acquainted with. With my wife being from the northeast of England, so I've got a drop in the northeast of England there. But professional benefits from having and, and leadership benefits from having worked in a, in a different country. And is there any things that you've taken back now that you've gone back to the US out of that experience? So I spent three years in uh, the northeast in uh, a town called Billingham, which is one of the little uh, manufacturing areas that were legacy ICI, which is a big, big chemical company that broke up into different sectors. And one of them went towards AgBio, which became a biotech company, which, um, which I had joined. And so uh, this company at the time was Avicia Biologics. And then that then got acquired by Merck. And that's how I got into Merck, really. But the cultural aspect of it, it was a manufacturing site of about 550 people at the time. And the cultural aspect was a real eye opener. There are a number of things that were, you know, legacy. ICI was a union 
um, site. And therefore, a lot of the union manufacturing uh, got leached into the structure within uh, Avicia Biologics. So there was that that dynamic there. There was a lot of um, structure within hierarchy and um, chain of command and aspects of efficiency that were really uh, fantastic, but some of it needed to have a twist to it. I was actually brought in to help bring their right first time metrics up. Um, we were operating at a right first time of something low in the you know the high sixty, like sixty eight percent, which meant for every manufacturing batch that you started, only sixty eight percent of them actually passed and were dispositioned to be able to be used. And that was that was. That was not okay. And within nine nine months, um, the team and I rallied and were able to actually make a lot of changes along with one of the mentors that I cherish. His name is uh, Coleman Casey. Uh, he is uh, from Ireland and he was a non-exec director for the company, but he spent a lot of time with me to be able to um, have a sounding board and help me. And what we were able to do is bring that right first time to uh, 95% from 68%. And in all also uh, increase a lot of the other metrics that we were looking at at the time. But it was really um, the ability to assess what the landscape was and how the structure was established over uh, a number of years of history that needed to be somewhat tweaked and changed to be able to unleash their full potential people. Um, were placed into roles that legacy they thought they were supposed to be in, but by their preferences and their attributes and the things that they really gravitate towards weren't really aligned. Um, one story that I'd share with you is in the manufacturing site, we had manufacturing shifts because it was a 24-7 operation. And uh, these teams were all brought together to a person that was the head of manufacturing and therefore a lot of people responsibility. Equally, you had uh, technical support, tech ops services kind of ahead that was supposed to go and do a lot of transition and solve problems and, and changes and things. And um, the persons that were in these two roles, you know, the person that was responsible for the shifts and the people um, wasn't really a people person. <laughs> they were the person that knew the most about the production plant because they were there from day one and they helped to build it. Um, and they were very technically capable, but they really had to struggle and, and work hard to interact and be with the people. And then equal and opposite, the person that was responsible for the technical services bit, uh, they were technically capable as well, but they had these amazing people skills. So you can imagine one of my first observations was to be able to flip-flop these two people in their roles. And I, I brought them into my office and I sat them down and I talked to them. And I said, look, let's be honest with ourselves and what we, what we can do and what we like to do. And both those roles are key and very important. But I will guarantee if you give me six months of trying it, you will be happier in doing what you're doing. So let's give it a go. And um, sure enough, they did. They had the courage to be able to take the leap. And we worked um, in this transition. And at the end of that time, I, I think that they, they were able to blossom. So it really so, worked out well. Do you think a, a, a large part of that, and is it part of your key kind of leadership ethos, mantras, if you like, Dan, of having people doing as much of what they, they like and they're good at as much as possible? Because none of us can have roles that 100% of the role is a joy and a song and a dance that we love all day long. It's That's just not the nature of, of working life. Of course, there's going to be elements, but is that one of the key things you've always tried to stick to? 
Yeah, that's the win-win. If you can, if you can find a role where a person, you know, there are things that people do all the time that they have to do. They don't necessarily like to do. Um, the key is to be able to find the joy in whatever you have to do. And that's an, just an outlook thing on, on life, right? I think that to be successful in work, um, you really need to find an area where you're good at and therefore you start to like it. And alignment is really what I'm trying to get to with people's natural abilities coupled with the thing that they de- have developed over their career. And, and just, you know, direct them and focus them towards doing that. It's really about focus. There's a, there's a book that I had read a long time ago. It's called The 21 Undisputable like, Attributes of a Leader, right? It was one of those books. And it went through a chapter for each attribute. And one chapter that kind of sticks in my mind talked about focus. And the example they used was there was this Major League Baseball player that was one of the number one, you know, hitters in the in the league. And they chose to focus on hitting and not try to improve their fielding because uh, the time that they would take to improve the fielding would probably take away from their hitting. And in doing that, you know, you could either have a world-class individual in what they're good at. Or you can have a fairly mediocre or maybe above average individual as an all-around player. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier, which was um, synergies. You want to really maximize what people are good at and then supplement what they're not good at with other, other people or other things other ways. And that's about building a team. Is there a particular approach for younger people that are going through their careers and ultimately they won't know, especially when you're in your early 20s, mid 20s, you don't know the role you want to end up being. How do leaders go about best supporting them to be able to find out what that is? Yeah, it's all about exposure and education. So, um, and when I say education, I'm not talking about the formal education that they're walking in with. This is about understanding how companies run and understanding it firsthand. So I think exposure and transparency uh, helps out dramatically and being able to um, really educate uh, young people within the company as to the different options they have. They see CEO because uh, they understand that that's the top spot, like uh, being you know the president of the United States. But the president of the United States isn't the end all be all, right? There are all kinds of different pieces of government that make it run. And if you go back to a corporate structure, everybody has a role that's a little bit different than one another. And they all have to run well for different reasons. That's how teams are assembled. So at the end of the day, with with young people, I would say, um, first, take the time, have the patience, learn the business, learn how it runs, because that will pay dividends in the end in choosing which role fits your personality, your attributes, your desires and experiences the best. There's never a substitute for being in there, doing and learning from others in a completely different you know, area, of, area of life and work for you, is there? To be able to have exposure to multiple functions is a lot easier in a small company. Big companies, you have more specialized siloed kind of workings, and then you have to tie them together. Small companies have those similar specialties. You just have less people. So you'll find that you'll have more exposure to all kinds of things, especially in drug development, that you wouldn't normally have in a bigger company. And you don't have to do it purposely. And therefore, you learn by example and you learn by what is spoken and you learn all kinds of other ways. So it's not necessarily a formal function. One one thing I wouldn't wanted to add from the last comment, though, around um, you know wanting to be the CEO as a young person. There are many really great stepping stone roles that help 
prepare you to be a senior leader within a company. Uh, One that I would point out is to be able to graduate towards program management because program management is one of those multifunction, multi-seeing, cross-functional seeing positions within many companies. Uh, And there are special attributes that you need to, you know, hone and skills and tools that you need for being a good and effective program manager. But the exposure gets you to multi-function discipline to bring teams together and, and align them is really a, a valuable thing. And so even though you might want to be a CEO by the age of 30, there it, there's a lot of value in going a route of trying to understand things, how it work um, within the company and program management is a good way to do it. But, you know, there have been other fantastic communicators I've had in my life that I've really used as mentors. One is in in the UK, um, the CEO at the time of that site. And so um, the CEO at the time was a guy named Steve Bagshaw. And Steve was not just a friend to me, and still is a friend, a good friend. But he was a fantastic mentor and person that you can learn a lot from. And Steve had this ability to tell a story to a group or into an individual. It didn't really matter. But he had this ability to tell a story that gave you such a vision and in a way that really moved you to be able to really motivate and rally people together. And he was also a fairly tall guy. And he also had this fantastic baritone booming voice, right? So he really captured you when he told this story. But the importance of being able to tell a good story and capture people's interest and really get them to understand uh, is so crucial in leadership that, that it separates the leaders from the really good leaders. And I would, I would put Steve Bagshaw in that category. There was a great, there was a great book that I, that I saw that described the CEO that typically, and again, of course, this isn't always the case, but typically is the visionary is the person that gets where they where the business could get to where they want to get to long term. And then the COO is the integrator. They are the person that out of the 20 ideas the CEO might have, one of them might be the one that we can actually run with. And then they go about doing the detail work and the in-house work to go and get all those things done. Would you describe the role that you have, Vedanta, in a similar guise? Are you kind of the integrator? There's a visionary that sits in that CEO spot, Dan? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's very clear. My CEO uh, is a very... Um, very, very smart man, but also uh, an amazing person. Um, his name is uh, Bernard Ole. And he has this, not just this vision, but a, like a passion that is infectious. He really truly believes in what we're doing and in the field. And he he has this drive and competitiveness to be able to um, really bring it forward. When I met him uh, six years ago, it was something that I really needed to think hard about to, to join the company because, quite frankly, my background wasn't in microbiome. I, I spent, at that point, 25 years doing injectable uh, biologics and never really went into this field. So it was a leap of faith. And after meeting Bernard, I clearly and easily saw how we could work together. It was very easy. He has this great vision, and he also is a chemical engineer, so he has this kind of systematic way of thinking. Um, but we we line up nicely. I bring to the table uh, a lot of things that he 
has less time to be able to do, but I also am able to kind of sit down and do the next layer of detail on his ideas and uh, work with the team to be able to build the next level of uh, execution, whether it's um, a budget um, for being executing on the, the company or um, the, the resources and capabilities that are needed to be able to do it. And then more importantly, the execution around um, communication and alignment for, for the programs and prioritization and all the other things that pop up as you're trying to go down this road of execution. So the, the, the relationship that he and I have is, is more personal, right? It's more of like a friendship almost. And, and every year it grows to be more like a friendship. But it's definitely a partnership for sure. You guys in the last few days have announced, uh, a, a, is it, am I right in saying Series D funding? It's a Series D, yes. Um, it's, it's obviously a, a great-looking investment, great-looking deal. And the bit that always is interesting to people that either are new to going through investment rounds and startup businesses or scaling businesses is how you manage and how you go about leadership with scaling, culture, whilst also going through what must be pretty intensive requirements from the investment side. Just talk to me how you even attempt to try and get that balance, uh, balance in the right position. So um, we, we obviously go forward like a lot of companies and develop our uh, plan and in financing our use of proceeds for the money that we're working to raise. And that alignment early in years, like earlier, had really more of a short horizon uh, maybe a horizon of a year, year and a half, which may be uncomfortable for some people that are used to it being in large pharma, but is not uncommon for small biotech and startup for sure. But um, the key to the whole thing is to be able to clearly state what it is you're trying to accomplish in that chunk of money and time, and then uh, map out these uh, inflection points or these these milestones that will bring you to a point of data that will then allow you to do the next the next round of funding. It's a block and tackle approach to being able to fund smaller companies that allows you to take these bite sized chunks. You know, everybody wants to go and develop a drug and and commercialize it, and that takes circa eight, ten, whatever years. You know, throw a number out there. And that's daunting. But if you take baby steps to be able to go to do it, you can see how you can do it, right? It's more attainable. And that's the type of thing with not only you're trying to manage up your story and your ability to execute to investment communities that will then trust you and give you money, um, but also manage down to the entire organization how we're going to do this. And they have to believe in how we're going to do it they have to be able to see how they're going to do it and what it means to them. So bite-sized chunks is something that I would probably emphasize for all smaller companies. And to be able to give yourself enough time after you've achieved your goal of data or the next inflection point to then raise more money. So it's not like you can get to your last penny and hit the data and then because money doesn't happen overnight, right? It takes time to be able to do that. So to plan enough lead time within that time frame for it. What you've described there sounds like a book to me. You've got <laughs> you want to get to the end because you want to find out what's going to happen, but actually a book's always divided up into chapters. Yeah, we're in chapter four or five and we're still doing the same thing. It's just that our our baby steps aren't as babies. It's more adolescent going into adulthood. So the strides are longer. 
Our time frames for use of proceeds are longer. The tasks that we're doing are longer and bigger. There's more of them. So, so the philosophy still holds true. It's just you need to have a longer outlook later on in your, your development as a company um, for strategic planning uh, more so. Early on, it's more tactical, right? Later, um, it becomes much more strategic. I, I detest questions like the one I'm going to ask because it's a little bit too leading. But would you say that the the biggest challenges of going from the baby-based position as a proper startup to the adolescence phase, as you phrase it, would you say that that is the biggest challenge there, Dan? Is, is that kind of like, well, we've got to get our you know chapter four, chapter five heads on now as opposed to like this six-month, 12-month funding periods? Would you say that is the biggest challenge or is there something else more pressing that you think is also a challenge with getting into that adolescence phase? Um, so the adolescence phase, the most challenging isn't, it's kind of a people mindset, right? You've been doing something for, you know, circa one, two, three years, you know, as an infant going into your adolescence. And now you have to change your thought process as you go towards adolescence into adulthood uh, as a company. And so that, that means not only growth from a bandwidth point of view, but a uh, growth from a experience of people point of view. So the biggest the biggest challenge has been able to bring in the right people at the right time and to be able to integrate them into an existing culture, an existing structure, and morph that structure. So I think people, uh, for better or worse, are used to doing things the same way all the time. And when you introduce change into the mix, it's it's stressful. So managing that stress and change is something that leaders have to really, really spend time doing to bring all of their people along with the change. One of the best ways I've seen to do it is to take people, sit them down as a group and build the plan and the vision and the, and the, the, the execution steps that you'd go through together and explain why. And once they get into it and build it, then it becomes their plan, not your plan. It's everybody's plan. And they've already bought into it. So it's not really you have to convince them because they've created it with you. There's a brilliant, I'm pretty certain it's a uh, President Washington quote that talks about, tell me and I'll forget, do it with me and I'll listen and then, but engage me. In, and and, 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 it, and of, of, of course, I've messed up the quote completely, but you get my point. If, if you do yeah. things with people and, and they have actually created that plan, I, I think there is incredible power that comes with that rather than it just being a, I've got to do this because I've been told to type of thing. So I think that's a brilliant point. I really do. That's a, um, so that's actually, that's a GMP manufacturing kind of a technique where you have procedures that you follow when you make, you know, therapeutic drugs and other drugs and you have documents that people are training on. So they'll read them, but then they have to then shadow and watch someone perform it so that they can learn it visually. So they're forming this procedure, same deal. And then they have to demonstrate which means that they have to run it and other people that were already trained and knowledgeable of it, watch them do it as well. And, and from that three-step kind of process, what you're doing really is you're hitting upon different ways that people learn. People learn visually, people learn by reading, people learn by talking and listening, and not everybody's the same. So you want to be able to effectively teach them how to do something. I personally, with this whole dyslexia thing, um, I don't learn nearly as well with reading, but man, I'm a visual learner and everything about being visual, whether it's giving presentations that have a lot of graphs and pictures and things to get a point across, 
that I, I gravitate towards. So different people learn different ways. And I've, um, I'm going to apologize to all the listeners. Not only did I completely um, muck up the quote that I was attempting to give, but I also named the wrong president. <laughs> it was, of course, Benjamin Franklin who said, tell me and I forget, teach me and I may remember, involve me and I learn, which I think is the point that you were mentioning there. So I just wanted to clear that up whilst I have a quick moment, Dan, because that was a, an absolute car crash of an attempt before. So, <laughs> just, just for the record, too, I want to make sure it's clear. Benjamin Franklin wasn't ever a president. He was just a very important person. Can't get much worse for me this section, can it? I, I, I think I better move on pretty quickly. <laughs> Either, I would, I would completely fail if I tried to do um, some type of historical facts around the UK and and the history structure of, of leaders yeah. in the UK. Because so. now that I think I about it, you know, being an inventor is probably more important uh, or more pro- prominent for that guy as opposed yeah. to being a president, right? But um, hopefully my editing team can do something special there. But actually knowing them, yeah. knowing them, they'll probably try and leave that in. So thanks guys in advance. The one that I'd like to finish, uh, I'd like to finish on before the lighthearted stuff is, and again, I've got to choose this last question carefully and I'm definitely going to come back to you in a few months when we're, when you're a few months down the line in series D Dan, and we can have another conversation about how, that next phase is looking but um what does outstanding leadership look like to you outstanding leadership um that's fantastic so some of the attributes of outstanding leaders across the board i think outstanding leaders need to be able to put the time and energy into really truly understanding their people and their needs and this touches upon things like communication and in communication it's really about listening and not talking I had a I had an uncle who happened to be my godfather but he was a university professor and he founded a number of different leadership um schools at University of Richmond, University of Antioch and so forth and he wrote a lot of books and stuff but he would he was my uncle and that's all I I really knew of him but he would sit and talk to me and he had this amazing way of really truly listening and asking you questions to be able to make you feel like you were the most important person in the world. And that was fantastic, right? He didn't talk about himself. He didn't have a a low self-esteem. He needed to really pump up his ego or something like that. He would talk to you and really pull what was going on with you and, and stuff. And that made you walk away from it feeling very, very good. And so I think leaders really need to practice this listening in order to communicate properly. And when they do choose to talk, it then becomes more meaningful to have that discussion. The other part, I think, in the communication aspect is to really keep things simple. Uh, most people think that if you're if you're complex and you use large words or you take very complex ideas and you put it out there, it makes you look smart. But in fact, what you're trying to do is really get a message across to people. And if you keep it simple, they'll not only understand it, but they'll they'll be able to kind of identify with it and be more relatable to it, right? And that's your goal is to really, really get a message across clearly and simply. And uh, yeah, I could, I could point out, you know, the people and, you know, Ronald Reagan and other people that like are notably or considered controversially uh, good communicators because they were simple communicators. But the, the, the whole communication and simplicity thing uh, is there. Um, the last thing I would, I'd mention, Peter, is a leader needs to really put themselves out there and it takes courage to be able to do this, right? They need to open up and take the first step to show the company who they are and, and show that they're not this like person up on a pedestal that's untouchable, but that they're a normal person 
And therefore, it opens up this relationship for for being able to relate, but also accessibility, transparency, all these other things that build trust. And trust is where you really need to get to with your team, with your company, because this is people's people's lives in our in our case, people's lives, whether it's patients' lives that we're trying to build and develop new drugs for to save them, or livelihoods of the families that we have in the company and they're making making their their way through life and they're having their own families and and are growing. Uh, one metric that I like to point out in our company is that the number of new births that we've had of all the employees in our company over the last five years is is really, really high. And that's because that's a sign of prosperity. Things are okay and things are then growing. Yeah, I think there's some absolutely outstanding bits in that, Dan, in relation to being that. I, I, after your point, which I take on board enormously about being a great listener, practice listening and listening, not talking, as you can tell from the amount that I love to jabber, that is not something that comes easy to me. It's not because I don't respect the people I was talking to. It's not because I don't want to hear their views. It's just that natural enthusiasm that I have because I'm like, oh, there's a thousand ideas going on, off we go. But listen, I... I think that was a huge, huge point and actually one that I'm uh, continually working on as an individual and will continue to do so because you're right, it is so important. Yeah, we could we could certainly go on and on and on, Dan. I've got no doubt about that. And it's probably a good job that you don't, we don't live in the same city because I think our lunches might go on and on as well if we were able to sit there chewing, uh, chewing through things. But um, last couple of lighthearted things then, Dan. The best book, podcast or video or movie that you'd recommend that you've taken long-lasting learns from? Oh, wow. Well, uh, there aren't a long list of books for obvious reasons, right? Podcasts other than yours, of course. Um, of course. <laughs> of course. Um, I, would, I would have to gravitate towards, you know, movie or types of movies. And the show that I liked from before you had mentioned, you kind of still tell the thunder was uh, The West Wing. Uh, and it was simply because of Charlie Sheehan and the role he played. That, that kind of inspired me at that time to be able to kind of be a better leader and, and use certain tools and attributes. And yeah. I think the other thing that I would point out is, is from my, like my uncle's books that he had put out, his name is uh, Richard A. Kudo. He's, he's passed away now five or six years, but he had written 13 or 14 books around leadership and social justice and um, the responsibility people have as individuals to help other people um, live better lives, whether it's through government civic duty or other other attributes right other things and and those those books are all good reads to be able to kind of get into it um, from a leadership book point of view one of them that I liked a lot was um, uh, a mix of history and leadership was Lincoln on leadership uh, that was a great book that was um, that was uh, Donald Phillips but uh, but Lincoln on leadership really went through a series of traditional leadership attributes but Put it into context before it was like a before it was really a a, a study or a, a a thing, and how Lincoln practiced all of these things just naturally in the way that he um, commanded, in the way that he worked with all the generals through the Civil War and and other things. But it was it was an interesting read because it mixed things that you kind of knew about through school and history, but from an angle of this leadership kind of thing. So. 
I would throw that one out, Lincoln on leadership. I'm a huge history fan for sure. I certainly, of course, need to improve my American history, as has been evident. So what I, 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 without doubt, that will be on my Amazon purchase list in the next uh, next couple of days down. So appreciate that share. One other book I would mention that's actually from our, our field that's an interesting read is um, one of our scientific co-founders, Brett Finley, had put out a book uh, a number of years um, out that's called Let Them Eat Dirt. And it's basically a book that talks about uh, the microbiome and how it works and how having a healthy, diverse microbiome really improves your health as a, you know, your immune health, your functioning health, things that we've learned over the last 10 years in our field that now Vedanta is being able to capitalize on to create very targeted, directed uh, defined consortia of bacteria as therapeutic drugs. And so uh, Let Them Eat Dirt by Brett Finley, I would I would suggest people pick that one up too. Nice. That sounds pretty good. Absolutely. I'm sure our, our life sciences guys will be uh, we're jotting that one down with some interest. Um, it's been a tough 18 months for lots of reasons. The fact that we are finally in the last few months allowed to get back out, go to some places and actually do a proper bit of unwinding away from our homes I think everyone's breathing a great sigh of relief off the back of that. And I think the final question I always love to ask, Dan, is that you've got a free afternoon. You specifically <laughs> cannot work. And what's the favorite way or what's the favorite place for you to spend an afternoon off to unwind in? There's some people that have picked their favorite pub or their favorite restaurant or there's a favorite spot they go with their family. How would you unwind if, uh, if you had the choice? Well, from a family point of view, I think that my family enjoys going off and going to good restaurants and going to uh, we, we just went to a place in outside of Boston uh, that's a massive escape room setup so it's got uh, well over a dozen different escape rooms that you go to and try to solve as a as a family as a team actually nice. but, but that that was a fun thing um, but to unwind um, to be honest I would choose to go and paint I I'm a painter. And so I've been I've been painting for circa twenty years, and um, and that I can lose myself, you know, six hours of myself like an instant by by throwing paint on canvas and really creating um, that. And and as a family, like um, my youngest is eight years old. I have three daughters, and my my youngest really enjoys to cook with me. I I do a lot of the cooking in the house. And so she and I like to go and, and we got her a set of, of her own kid knives from Ikea. And so she chops and I chop and we, we make, uh, we make things like Italian wedding soup and uh, other, other things like that. So um, yeah, I like to cook as well. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, we, we certainly have that in our family, Dan. And uh, my wife happens to be a, 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 a pretty great cook and a wonderful baker. And uh, to see my, I've got three daughters who are, six five and three and to see them all in their little aprons on various size stools standing up at the counter doing some baking with mum is a pretty uh pretty great way to spend a few hours right i'll probably be coming to you for some tips before too long right that's right that's right uh, yeah absolutely so uh yeah listen um dan it's been really really great speaking with you um thank you so much for sharing your journey and leadership learns with us today i'm sure there's lots that resonate with the listeners and like me they'll be taking away some valuable ideas i know that i've got a packed notepad in front of me that's for sure thanks everyone for listening if you enjoyed the episode please give a five-star rating and share with others in your network thanks very much <laughs>